This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Chris Bowers, and this week we bring you an in-depth discussion with one of the world's leading doubles coaches. At the Rogers Cup in Montreal, Jill Krabus spent time with the one and only Louis Caille. The LTA want also that I bring uh, as a performance advisor for the coaching certification, because in Canada I was in charge of coaching certification. So I helped design their two level of high performance coaches. Then they would like also um, an advisor for the National Academy that they're starting. They're starting two new National Academies. So I'll be performance advisor for the Love Bra one, where it will represent about uh, two months of my time there. And sometimes performance advisor randomly to some singles players or to some of uh, the SNC department or some department who wants a bit more tennis knowledge or tennis precision about like some norms about tennis so that I bring that so I'm quite uh, I like that being all around because I chose to not be on the road full-time when I had the child and my child is seven years old and I didn't want to be on the road more than five months as I used to be normally nine or ten months in the past now you said you said you're you have a lot of roles to take care of there and it seems like quite a lot um, and you said your specialty is more of the doubles is that something you've just naturally feel like you've know more about or is that something that's been an interest from you from the beginning? Well, it, j- it just happened because I was a uh, Davis Cup captain for Canada so I was traveling with the players and it just happened that uh, Connell Michibara became like one then uh, Laron Esther became like one they won gold medal and, and so on so I was labeled like a double specialist and then I worked with the Israeli they won a slam become good and then I came with the LTA they asked me uh, they wanted badly to have top 100 players and singles and doubles so they had already Gilbert and Akon main coaches they said could you bring one or two players in the top 100 I say hopefully I can do better than that and since then I think I helped them to have 20 players uh, that succeed to be in the top 100 since I'm there and I know I know it was I think I read an article saying it was Judy Murray that really recognized you to want to actually bring you to the LTA did you what what was that conversation like? What specifically did she feel like you could bring to the British players? To make it more precise, it was not for British tennis, it was for Jamie. It was for Jamie? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it took quite a bit different. And, and it uh, extended she saw me into w- working with the Israeli. She heard that I was visiting my girlfriend quite a lot because she was British. And she said, I heard you come often in London, could you help her, Jamie? So then I saw she sent me a little video of Jamie. I gave her a 25-page report on... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that, and, uh, and she said, wow, she, she liked that type of coaching, attention to detail and very thorough. Then I started to work with Jamie. It, it went well right away. He really climbed the ranking quickly. And then she said to the LTA that uh, they should hire me. And, and me, I wanted. It was tougher to see my girlfriend regularly at the costume. They were st- stopping me. I come, come here and... And they were afraid I work illegally. So by having a working permit, I was aiming for that and be officially a resident. So I chose to work for the LTA. But before that, I was never employed by anyone. Even Tennis Canada was a 
days contract always be my own uh, bus, if you can say. Would you like? But, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it was more convenient to work for the LTA, to have the working permit leading eventually to residency, uh, which I am now. I'm a resident of Great Britain, so it makes things quite easy. No, I'm, I'm not going to keep you here to explain the 25-page report, but <laughs> <laughs> are there certain things that you maybe like some highlights from that report that you feel like were key for <clears throat> Jamie's success? But I like to be quite thorough, and you, uh, at that time, because now it's quite good, I look at this role of server, and then shut after, then his role of server's partner, then when they're both at the net, then receivers, receiver's partner, second shot as a receiver. So I look at a lot of things. I look at things, positioning, movement, then the timing of this and all that. And at that time, unfortunately for him, he was not doing many of any of these things properly. So I just highlight and I was doing like a photo of him compared to a photo, let's say, of the Bryans. You could see the difference in the positioning uh, stuff, I guess. I just say, look, this is what you do. This is what the top team are doing. So it took quite a long page, but uh, it was quite thorough in all the roles because you have to be solid in all these roles. If you're not good at one of these six things I said, uh, it's hard to be good in doubles. Now, now for example, you, you said the Bryan brothers in particular. Yeah. What, what was their, why is their core position so good, <coughs> would you say? What I, what I like, like the philosophy I brought to the British doubles system, like right now we're, we're still quite effective. I think we have seven players in the top 55 where we're doing quite well. And it's, it's all based on making people miss, not uh, us going and kick them out of the court with the aces, return winners. So like the brands, we have quite a good position forcing people to go for low percentage shots. So they have to go for, yeah, they have to, we make them go for tough shots or we create a lot of uncertainty with poaching. We poach on return, we poach on serve. And by creating a lot of uncertainty, the players, for me, uncertainty bring anxiety potential anxiety some people will not get phased out but often players get more anxious anxious bring a bit muscle tension muscle tension ruin your coordination and you start to play bad so by being completely unpredictable with the variation of their serve variation of their movement and all this we want to create anxiety on the other end we try to develop anticipation find the wood cutting find the open and predictable so we reduce anxiety on our side because the opponents will be predictable so when you can predict more what they do and you can be more unpredictable you increase your chance of winning 52 percent of the point which is just what you need to win matches so mike by making all the brits i work with believe that if they follow this they can win 52 percent of the points then they are quite successful and i brought many british players in the top 50 maybe 15 top 50 by following a very basic philosophy of uh, it's not about us winning points about us making people lose points with low percentage shots and creating a bit tension and make them try too hard yeah so 52 percent that's fascinating to me because it does a lot of these matches we were just talking before we went on air a lot of these matches come down to just one or two points it can go either way so that 52 percent is so important um do you create so you create these anxiety like try and help these anxiety moments do you are you able on the practice store court to replicate <coughs> pressure moments because that's something that's difficult yeah, we try pretty much all the training we always talk about training environment yeah, that's very common in the literature so i try to create pressure training environments so for example even if there are two players let's say we're just the two players together uh, sometimes i play like volleyball tennis so 
I serve, and I win point only when I serve. So it's say I win the point one zero, win the point two zero. I lost the point. Nobody has a point, but you start to serve. Not zero two. You win a point. Two one. You win a point. Two two. You lost that point. It's two two. I start to serve first to seven. So each point become very important because if you because you're up four one, you slack one and you lose. Then I start to serve. I can make four two four three four four. So I, I tried to find a lot of scoring system which force you to play every point. Or we play uh, the format now is seven point maximum, right? So sometimes I say, okay, we play six points, but if you don't put four serves out of six, which is sixty-two, sixty-six percent, as soon as they put three points out of six, they lose the game. So to get the pressure of putting the percentage of first serve to get used to be disciplined. And when I go for seven points, I say tough luck, the seven point. If you don't put the first serve in, you lose the, the game. To just get used to that they develop confidence, they can serve big when it matters and to be more aware of percentage. And we do a lot of points where uh, on seven points, they have to force two or three down the line returns. So the returner practice down the line, they have to do at least two, three I. So we try to create pressure environment and to practice everything that can happen, which been regular, normal, regular with a poach, I uh, normal, I with a poach. So you serve every possibilities, you know, normal without and with a poach, I with or without a poach. Have the returner then return cross in line and always play competitive, keep track of percentage of first serve. So put pressure on the process and on the outcome. And after you get very use a bit the stress it's a bit easier in the match when you serve with desire not just through the go through the motion so i try to create a lot of pressure environment in yeah the, that's fascinating have the have the players given you that feedback that they do feel that pressure with all these different yeah, things because that you're doing with them. And nobody like likes to lose yeah. so i don't need to say uh four or five push-up just losing to the other guy they don't want to yeah yeah they don't want to lose so that's enough pressure to say, especially if people watch. So if I watch, ah, so you won again? Okay, let's say a third third, third round of a third game. No one wants to lose three love, three games love to their friend there. So they sometimes it's really ugly battle. They really fight hard. So it's to create, a, yeah, I think it's important to create an environment like doing just approach volley without stress. Okay, practice approach volley, now game of five. It's always a game of five, game of this. I think, I, I think uh, everybody wants to have great competitors, and if you create a competitive environment, I think you increase the chance to have great competitors. And you you mentioned actually the guys um, that are now in the top 60: Jamie Murray, Joe Salisbury, Neil Skubsky, Dominic Inglot, Luke Bangbridge, Ken Skubsky, and Johnny O'Mara mm. on the top 60 now. Then and the, that's been a lot under your influence. Not everyone's the same. So a lot of personalities, a lot of individual characters, but you've somehow made it work for everybody. How do you deal with the different personalities? Um, first of all, I, I, every time I coach double, I coach three people. I coach a do-side player, maximizes game style, strength, and how to deal with his less good strengths, the outside players, and then the team. So so it, the team is to how they will set up each other, which play Will, will help uh, to maximize the strength. If someone is very good at the net, we'll play a bit more high. If it's not that good, we'll play more, maybe regular if someone. So it's to maximize the strength of each player 
but to see how can they combine uh, together also because two good players can be playing together and nothing happens so and when I scout I scout the two side player the outside player and the team which means how does that team uh, works together to cause problem and that's it so it's like for me like I say I teach three players and I scout three players kind of in order to go to into a match so it's like I don't think people realize that doubles because I do coach singles too I did it's much more complex than singles much more tactics much more thing can happen how so how so how much how like, let's say just on the serve if you someone serving singles if you block it deep in the middle you're fine and doubles a guy could serve a regular and poach serve eyes stay there so this uh, if you just block it in the middle there will be a guy in the net just smack it so you you are forced to return big serve with more counter countering you have to try to keep it low unless you love you have to make a good shot and um That's it. I think it's tough. And then, let's say you serve in volley, suddenly you volley, but there's a person in front of you that can cross. So you have you have uh, you need much more awareness on the outside. As in singles, you serve wide, you volley open court like 95% of the time. There will be no one jumping on your first volley. So there's a lot of complexity. And uh, so when we do a first volley, for example, I say okay because very often you train only two players. You don't tra people think you train four players with. It's always two. Uh, okay, I say, okay, serve and volley against regular, one up, one back. So their first volley has to cross the double strand line. Now I say, okay, serve and volley, both back. So then they volley on the back end of the do side player. So we have to always practice now against one up, one back, two back, against the server coming up, coming back. A lot of people are not aware now that uh, 50% of the men stays back on their serve. So even seven years before a guy who serve and stay back say yeah I play doubles but I don't play proper doubles I stay back because they were maybe just five percent ten percent now no one will say I don't play proper doubles do you play doubles yes serve stay back smack my forehand you know so that's part of common now which in a way is good for the club members and the pros teaching the clubs because I saw coaches and clubs forcing everybody to serve and volley or to play always one up one back on the return because they say that's the way the pros play so now if a member like me 66 if i want to stay back on my serve they cannot say no no pros serve and volley because you know like only 10 of the lady max serve and volley and now it's only 50 of the men and uh, there's often now to see both back on the return so the members now can pretty much play the way they want and no coach will say you don't play proper doubles because now so many things yeah. are possible You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. As I'm talking to you, you seem like you're very into the statistics of the game and working a lot of your strategy off of that. Do you do you pay a lot of attention to that? Because that seems to be something that's growing in a lot of yeah, these players' interests. And we're lucky with the LTA, we have performance analysis. Uh, the match of our players are tagged. And if I had my computer, you could ask me, I would like to know how he returns, how uh, Joe returns back and T against high formation, stuff like that, whatever you want. I will do a filter. I will say show return shot like this, and you will see the six points that he played uh, and stuff like this. So I can see pretty much everything. Honestly, could ask me any question. I would like to know more. When did do I, uh, who, How often is it the server's partner or servers 
touching it, what is the percentage of the server when you touch it, winning the point, consistency, pretty much anything. Might make a list for you. (laughs) I like to not do their job because each point you have to tag. And after that, at the end of the year, like Jamie Marie once asked me, should I keep loving my return? I say you loved last year 232 times on the return of first serve and you won 32% of the points, keep up. Because if you win more than 30% return of serve in the men, you're, you're, you're very happy. That's mean the guy was winning only 68% on his first serve when, when they all aim to win 78 or 80. So I say that's good and it creates a good variation. It's part of your game style to create uncertainty. But if I would just say, I don't know, I think so. I think it's good. No, 232 times, 132% of the point, that's fact. And I have all these facts with the tagging that we do at the LTA. Well, that's interesting, too, because I feel like it also brings an awareness to the player. Because a lot of players aren't aware maybe how effective things are going. So to bring that to that intention, was Jamie surprised when you mentioned that? Because what they remember is the short love that the guy smacked the smash over the fence. The love that went up. Because when you win one point out of three, it's easy to remember the two points out of three you lost. But if you... You play tennis, if you win one point out of three in return of first serve, it's good stats. Good yeah. stats, because yeah. if you win one point out of two, you kill the person in front of you, like easy. So so any stats one on three is good, but you can remember just the two points out of three. Because when you miss your love, the guy smash and you feel like terrible, stuff like this. But it's, it's too, like I say, it's one in the bank. If you love after that, they are less tendency to close on it that much, and then the return go through the middle a bit more easy. So it's to create, like I say, uncertainty, make a lot of variation, be less predictable. So if they serve on his back and will he return line, will he return cross, will he love, will he come in? Jamie can do all these variations. So it's hard to have a set play against him. And you also, besides the statistics, you also said that you look to see if these players are gonna be courageous. Um, why is Why, in your opinion, is that so important? Uh, because I think every coach should coach people tennis and not tennis to people. I think we're there to coach someone. And I like to distinguish between two words, uh, coach a performer, because I'm a high performer coach, right? Our performance coach. So it's my ability to coach a performer and any sport that I would do, if I football, whatever. So for me, if I don't have the ability to transform an identity, a belief, a mindset, an attitude, or any emotional skills, I would not consider myself a high performance coach if I cannot transform performer. So courage is part of being a performer, and you need courage only when there's fear. But we don't have to go so far as fear, anxiety, worry, like this is a form, a little form of fear, and to stay committed, like you played, stay committed on your second serve to go for it or return. Sometime when the outcome is close and if you make that shot, you win the tournament and all this, there could be a little dilemma on your head. Do I play safe? Do I go for it and all this? So I prefer that they do the right things. And for me, doing the right thing under pressure is to be courageous because you're surmounted any type of anxiety, worry, uncertainty that you may have and you commit to your shot yes and I think the I think the biggest question that a lot of people have is is what are these players thinking these top players that um, whether it's in singles or doubles the ones that you've helped get to the top in that moment when you are so nervous that you almost can't feel your arm 
this is the moment to be courageous. How do you help those players get across that line? But more they have an identity. Let's say, for example, let's say Louis Caillé, who's speaking right now, has a reputation to be funny. I would have done three or four jokes already with you. I would have <laughs> made you laugh because I'm funny. You know, so I tried to build up an identity. This is who we are. Like right now, just have that re discussion with Rajiv and Joe. Who are you really? Under pressure, live and die from who you are. So then I can take other example. I say, when these guys win or lose, do they look that they change our style, change this? You know, I take the best players in the world. They live and die by who they are, right? So I say, same with you guys. And more you're, you're a strong sense of identity, that helps you under pressure to stay congruent with who you are. But for me, I have to build that. So I have three words that I like to use with the word form. I have to inform players and give them knowledge. Form them is to develop competencies to a level of mastery where they can feel they own the shot, not just have it. And transform. So inform, form, transform. For me, transform is the most important thing. It's, like I say, transform any beliefs, identity. If, if I go with the singles players and he was labeled a bit lazy or a choker or whatever, if I don't transform that labeling, the guy is finished, right? So I have to transform all this and I find that once you have a strong sense of identity and everybody have a different identity, like if you ask me, who are you? I could say I'm Canadian or I could say, oh, I have asthma or I could say I'm a tennis coach or I could say I'm a father. And so very often the way we define ourselves expressed our most important values of sense of who we are. So I try to have them an identity, a mental identity, I'm a fighter, a tactical identity, which is the game style, technical identity, I have big serve, big forehand or weak volley, and a physical identity, I'm quick, I'm explosive, I'm athletic, I'm balanced, whatever it is. And then a global identity of who are you as a performer and who are you as a tennis player. And I, I really believe, like Nadal just walking beside us, I think he has a very strong sense of identity. That helps a lot to be who you are under pressure and then to be more congruent with your image. So that's what I really try to, to do, really, really, really give them a strong sense of who they are. And then, like I said, the tendency to be congruent with who you are helps you to be more committed under pressure uh, to play. It seems easy, but it's not as easy. It's as not easy. Yeah, yeah. No, you explained it really well. I'm just curious if you get um, what your what your opinion is on Nadal's identity, and also do you do you help with the player's identity off the court as well as a yeah, of person? Course. A lot of the, yeah, I think a lot of the coaching happens at uh, when you eat together. <laughs> so it's not always on a tennis court. This discussion happens, or when you travel, or. Sometimes they don't even know you're coaching them. You say, oh, I really like that guy because, and then it's a, it's coaching. It's, you, you can make it like a, a bit like naive, like if you're, but you have an intent when you speak to it. Yeah, yeah, it's on the court, it's off the court. It's because uh, we, you, you know the life, you travel with the players, you're always with them. You have breakfast with them, lunch with them, dinner with them, see them before the match at the gym, after debrief, brief, and so so you're in contact, so you have a, and when you train, so you have a lot of chance to influence or make them see things differently. Or even if it would be just for, you know, the sense of responsibility. Let's say um, you say, my opponent make me lose my concentration. I say, okay, we rephrase, please, okay. 
I lost my concentration when the opponent is there. So now you own the emotion. So it's you who can change now. Otherwise, if the opponent did that, then the opponent has to change. And of course, the opponent won't change and you're, you're a victim. So like, I lost my concentration when the referee, I, 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 I got annoyed when they... So more you own the emotion, more you can do something about it. The other things that it's important, I think, as a coach to do, we call about empowerment. So I would prefer to go when a guy goes into the match show, instead of saying, I want you to, you have, you must, you need, I'll say, remember, uh, you may consider the possibility. It may be preferable. You may choose. It may be better. So I, I empower them to make decisions out there. And, uh, and I think the choice of words could be quite important. So when you, when you make a lot of these little things, all together it starts to pay. Responsibility, empowerment, autonomous, and stuff like this. But uh, as a coach, you, you need to know what you're doing and, and what you're pursuing. And there's more into coaching than just say, bend your knees and watch a ball. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's so many factors as you're as you're telling us, and um, it's just fascinating to listen to you talk about this. But um, also, like since Nadal was just next to us, and he's been playing this board game every single day, they've been getting very competitive with each other yeah. about it. I think it's the same game. I see him at almost every tournament. He seems to love that game. He loves it, but, but, but I mean, the, it gets heated. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when you lead, uh, I used to like reading biography. It's, it's, it, there's a common thing. They're always competitive at everything. Yes. I just read not long ago about Zverev and like uh, from the parents say, if we wanted to go to sleep, we have to let him win because he will keep playing that game until he wins. So wow. it's, it's, I don't know. It was in a newspaper or article, or maybe ATP article. Yeah. And uh, but all the stories is like this. I, I know a bit of Andy Murray is so competitive. Everybody, they, that's who they are. You know, like they're competitive. And uh, I read the article from the conference of Tony Nadal. So it was, he mentioned it was not just about Altrali, the opponent, but he was saying to uh, uh, Rafa, it's about, yeah, I want you to outcompete the opponent. So that's quite powerful to say mm. outcompete because which behavior will come from outcompeting you? A lot of them, eh? You're going to out, going to run everything. I love that everything. saying, actually. Yeah, you're going to go out and outcompete yeah. your opponent. So. Again, it's part of an identity. And if people talk about Nadal, they won't just say, oh, yeah, he's a lefty server. They won't just describe his strokes. They will de describe his mindset and his resiliency. And like, what, last night he lost like six, one or six to the first set and then go. You just know that even if you lose a first set 6-1, it's far than being over. You know, it's that resiliency, that competitiveness, that point-by-point uh, -point mentality that... Uh, it's easy to say, but not easy to do. He has that. Well, why do you feel like like him? And then you also and I mentioned Annie Murray, who I was going to bring up. Why do you feel like they know their identity so well? I don't know, but you, you know that Tony Nadal, like in his book, I think mentioned he was always doing that and respect and the, the, all of that. Uh, Andy, I think Judy also was influential at the beginning. So I think a, a lot of time you will see. Uh, the players, like even in other sport, Tiger Woods, that the parents could have been quite, or family, quite influential on the values or absence of values that the children can be raised on. And uh, I don't exactly know. I know I read the book on Nadal, of course, like everybody, but they, they, it was really on purpose. They have very, very uh, strict values that they wanted to communicate to Rafa, and I think they did a great job at it. But I would, I would not feel 
confident to name them, but they, they were quite, uh, they knew what they were doing and uh, what values that they wanted to be installed. And personally, I know which value I want to install and how I want to influence uh, the players. It's not, uh, it's not lucky. I have a clear vision about the word I choose and uh, stuff like this to create, try to transform a bit of mindset because everything comes back to a mindset. So if you can influence the mindset and change the way you look at it, Sometimes you can use even a fact, like one player was very stressed on a breakpoint when he returns, so then you show facts how many breakpoints is converted. So you see, like, oh, it's about 33% of the points. So if you want to break once, create three breakpoints, and that's it. Don't be so stressed every breakpoint you have because nobody converts 100% of the point as an average. Okay, in a match, you can have just one convert one, but overall, you know, like two out of six, three out of seven is more the norm. It's not seven out of seven. It will be six love, six love. So, uh, so th whatever ways you, you tackle it, you need to find a way to transform anything that is not conducive to perform well and uh, praise everything that is conducive to perform well. Because bottom line, it's about peak performance state on that court. We don't care how well you hit the ball. And by the way, you were a good, good, very good performer. I saw you play. Thank you, you Louis. Were, you were a good fighter. Thank you. It's, it I love to, to compete. Yeah. yeah. It's like it has to be about this. And if you cannot influence someone on that regard, and you just coach tennis, I don't. I would consider myself just a teacher, not a yeah. not a coach. It's interesting that the words are interesting to me because I've talked to quite a few coaches that. Um, f feel like it, they get frustrated with their players because they don't think the words should matter that much. The players should be able to deal with that adversity, even like it shouldn't matter so much about what you're saying because it's another challenge for you. But you view that differently. You think the word choice is very important. Of course. Let's say uh, you go in a match right now against one girl. Say, okay, now you understand me. You have to. You need. You must to do that. Okay. And you go to, or I want you to. Okay, so remember, we talk about, so remind me what you want to do. You, not me, Yes. You. What do you want to do? That's good. And remember, you know, if this happens, it may be preferable that you change more rhythm or you may consider maybe to start to serve more wide if you, because maybe the game plan was to serve more tea, but I give you instead of saying plan B and or I want you to. I think, yeah, if you have a language which empowers someone, and show you have confidence in them and all this and you don't make the person dependent, I think it's it's important. The way you communicate has to have something to do with it. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, yeah. I, I think that's an excellent point. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, Louis, it's, it's been fascinating and really an honor to talk to you. Because, I mean, you've had so much success with the Canadians and the British, and it's just been fun to watch. And I know, I know Jamie Murray even said everything, everybody you coach, absolutely improves extensively so congratulations on much. all your success i could i feel like i, I want to learn so much from you but <laughs> it's 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 been a while but i pre, i really appreciate your time thank you so much Pleasure. for thank you for much. joining us yeah bye-bye thank you thanks to jill cravis and of course louis kaye for that amazing insight next week we'll be rounding up events from beijing and tokyo and looking ahead to the penultimate masters event of the year the rolex shanghai masters i'm chris bowers and this has been the atp tennis radio podcast if you like this podcast please search the itunes store for atp tennis radio to leave a review, review.